Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. challenge was figure it out right adapt be yourself learn to adapt to your environment because that's what you're going to have to do anyways and make it work and we're here to support you and help you and go do it that was a really good change of pace for me because it allowed me to get more out of the experience rather than trying to, you know, impose what I think should happen into the group. I said, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite and pay more attention and be more attentive, respond rather than react. The idea of perfection being a trap. You were given these ideals of it has to be perfect, you have to be perfect. If you're not perfect, you know, you don't have anything useful to say. Our society creates these ideals of perfection and somebody reaches it for a minute and then they're not useful anymore. And I think that approach is not productive. You want to find the people that are willing to show up every day and put in the work and put in the time and be accountable. And those are the people that you want to associate yourself with and engage with and connect with and build relationships with. Hello, it's Faye here from Faye's World. And I'm stuck inside my house right now in Boston while recording this intro. Yep, it snowed again in March. Can you believe that? It ain't usual snowstorm either, but the one, you know, that hits double digits. More reasons to work indoors, and I'm sure those of you who live in colder climate know exactly what I'm talking about. A couple of months ago, I decided to challenge myself to a different sort of MBA. The one is called ELT MBA. I think it stands for Alternative MBA, founded by one of my favorite teachers named Seth Godin. Over the course of four weeks, Uh, In between January and February 2017, nights and weekends, I connected with dozens of like-minded people, learning about business and about life. One of the people I met is named Gustavo Serafini. He is our guest today. Where others see obstacles, Gustavo sees opportunity. Gustavo consistently challenges himself to overcome the obstacles in his life, while inspiring others to do the same. As a successful entrepreneur, Gustavo overcame the odds of a historic recession and a host of naysayers. He finds joy in opportunity. He knows that difficulty will never outshine persistence, belief, and courage. His motto is, if I can do it, so can you. Gustavo and I worked together in a cohort during ELT MBA. He was always thoughtful with his comments and feedback. Originally from Brazil, Gustavo's family moved to the States when he was still a little baby. Born with a birth defect, Gustavo had to learn how to walk and live like the other kids. Fast forward a few decades, 
Gustavo is now a successful businessman who runs pure audio video in Florida with his brother. From studying Buddhism to going to law school, Gustavo transformed himself in pursuing endeavors that I couldn't help learning more about. So I welcome you to listen in on our conversation and leave a comment on our blog, phaseworld.com, or social media. Without further ado, please welcome Gustavo Serafini to the Phase World podcast. My listeners who don't know how we got to know each other, which is just about a couple of months ago, believe it or not, we met through Seth Godin's uh, ELT MBA, which I believe stands for Alternative MBA, like a different uh, way of approaching uh, learning more about business and how to make it more practical. It was cohort-based and we happened to be slotted in, I believe, only one of the cohorts uh, over the course of four weeks and we connected right away. So I would love for this episode to be about a few things, one of which is related to the ELT MBA. I'm also super interested in learning two other things. One is about your origin stories and how your family moved to the U.S. and your upbringing, as well as your uh, you being an entrepreneur, you know, currently residing in Florida. And, and I can see your brand right on my screen, pure audio uh, video. So I would like to hear a little bit more about the origin story because when I read your bio, it hit me right away just how transparent, how vulnerable you are writing such a bio in front of 100, 200 people you had never met at that point. And eventually you probably have met only 40, 45 of them. Tell me a bit more about how old were you when you moved over and why your family decided to um, immigrate to the U.S.? Okay, so when I was born, I had a con- well, have a condition called PFFD, which is proximal focal femoral deficiency. There were only about 12 people in the world at that time in 76 who had that condition. And, um, you know, I was born in a small town in Brazil. So my father was a doctor. He had just finished his residency. And so they went out and, you know, traveled and interviewed bunch of doctors from all over the world, Japan, Canada, the United States, you know, Argentina, Brazil, to figure out, was this treatable? Would I be able to walk? Would I be able to, you know, function normally in society and and contribute? And so the idea was very few people knew about this. And what was the strategy? What were the goals going to be? And uh, they ended up really liking a doctor in the United States Um, And they decided to go ahead and make the move. And, you know, it was really difficult. They obviously didn't know English and uh, moving to a foreign country and all of those challenges. And I was two when they actually came over to the States and um, had an operation. And um, from there, it was like prosthetics and braces and learning to walk. And it took a lot of time. And it was really, I guess everybody was learning. I was always in, you know, regular schools. I was always in, you know, uh, the challenge was figure it out, right? Adapt, be yourself and learn to adapt to your environment because that's what you're going to have to do anyways and make it work. And we're here to support you and help you and go do it. And that's what I did. And it was, it was different, but I also didn't want to be treated differently from anybody else. I think the golden rule that I learned early on was, treat people the way you want to be treated. 
And for the most part, you know, that worked out really well for me. Mm. So you mentioned you were only two years old. I didn't realize you were that young. And in a way, I guess it was the best decision to do that while you were, you know, most kids only started to walk when they're about a, a year old. So do you remember what the journey, do you still have any recollection of that part of your life? You know, how long did it take for you to learn to walk and uh, to adapt? I remember very little. I remember, you know, kind of uh, my mom was really the one that pushed and, you know, was like, had the will. She gave me that sense of willpower of overcoming the obstacles and pushing through them. I don't remember exactly, maybe three. I remember starting kindergarten um, at like a Montessori school and I was already walking then with braces. But, you know, like the school was on a really big, it was like kindergarten and first grade. And the land that they had was huge. So like the playground was pretty far away. And I remember that they came up with a little cart. So like the teachers would push me in the cart, right? Because I couldn't walk that far. But then I'd go and play with the kids and then they'd push me back. Or sometimes the kids would help push me back. And then, you know, the classroom environment was fine. But so like little creative things like that, that I think people helped participate in and help solve little problems and make little concessions that, you know, helped me engage with everybody and feel comfortable in the schools. And, you know, always there was, uh, all of those school environments were really good like that. And as I got older, that was, there wasn't really a need for that. So it just kind of, you, you adapt, you know, depending upon the school and the people and the environment. Wow. It's so funny that you mentioned uh, Montessori School because I relatively recently I interviewed a young man named Gordon Lau on Phase World uh, who studied philosophy at New York University and whose family immigrated to Canada when he was only three years old. And he went to Montessori School as well. And as a 22-year-old today, he remembers so fondly of how he was treated, how learning was managed, and how different it was. And he wanted to attribute so much of his, you know, current being, and whether I don't think he can call himself successful just yet, to what he learned. And also, on a related note, yesterday, I was at my Taekwondo school watching another podcast guest named Dan Cooper, who is a principal performer for the Blue Men Group to TJ Leadership Program uh, workshop at the Taekwondo school. Kids, uh, 20 kids between the age of 10 and 16. And it was phenomenal to watch because uh, one of the things he said is precisely what you just did, is that if we support one another, we will be so much better together. And that notion of paying it forward, if I help you and you go help someone else, it's really interesting. And I see a lot of that at Elton BA um, as well. So I can't believe, you know, as a three-year-old, that's the bits and pieces that you, you did remember. Absolutely. You know, and there's a, you know, in college, I dove really deep into philosophy and Buddhism and, you know, the, the self-discovery process. And there's a great notion in American pragmatism of unity and diversity. So it's, you know, understanding how we're all different, but still staying unified in supporting each other and helping each other and not losing sight of the things that we have in common as human beings. That really works. Um, and Alt-MBA embraces that too, is we're all unique, but we still share these fundamental similarities that 
we can relate to and help each other with and and grow from it and i i learned a lot from that in school engaging with people and i i hope i brought some of that back too is like look you know you you can adapt you can overcome obstacles and still give something back that's unique and and interesting to people mm. Which I have to echo, and I will try not to jump ahead. I find uh, when I was taking L10BI, I, I found you to be incredibly insightful and very genuine in terms of your feedback and how you observe and listen very carefully of the conversation that we're having, which many people listening don't know that many of our classes lasted, where collaborations lasted for three or even four hours at a time, quick lunch break, and we'll regroup. So pretty intense sessions. You know, you were very memorable in a way that uh, you had a lot to offer to the group, but you also listened carefully. So there's a really good balance there. Um, how did you gain that level of insight? Have you always been this way? Does that sound foreign to you or that's sort of how you're perceived uh, among, you know, amongst your friends as well? I'm curious. I think you'd, you'd probably have to ask my friends if that's true or not. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you. I think that I came to the Alt-MBA, you know, as uh, having a small business and having to be a leader and being put in that role for so long. My goals for the Alt-MBA were to take a step back and kind of embrace the people, the, this group of talented people and say, okay, I'm not going to lead. I'm going to observe and listen and absorb what's going on and try to be helpful. And I think that was a really good change of pace for me because it allowed me to get more out of the experience rather than trying to, you know, impose what I think should happen into the group. I said, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite and pay more attention and be more attentive and respond rather than react. I got a lot more out of it. And, and yeah, that was my goal. So I, I wanted to take a different approach and it helped me. Mm. Since we started talking about L10BA and I have a sense of that people listening to this may have heard of Seth Godin, may have seen the ads of uh, L10BA on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere, and uh, or even people who have taken the classes or are about to take the classes uh, are thinking what to expect. It's fascinating to me that I am interested in, in knowing what will happen next for L10BA, where what did happen with our session was number eight, but what did happen between session one and seven? You know, what did people learn then? What are they doing now? So let's dive in a bit. To me, my experience was uh, outstanding, it, above and beyond what I had expected. At the same time, I feel like some concepts and learnings are slipping already that as much as I try to apply to my daily lives, and granted, there's so many different ideas and concepts, what are some of the learnings that you remember the most or sort of at the top of your list right now? Um, well, first, I share your thoughts there. It was a life-changing experience. It was fantastic, um, much more than I thought I was going to get out of it. And I agree 100% that there's so much information that they throw at you in four weeks. Um, it's impossible to truly digest it all in that period of time and even afterwards. But the two kind of key components that have stuck with me so far, the way it's structured without getting into it too much, um, 
is we have these prompts, you know, during the week where you have a project, you have to put the project out there and then you get feedback from people on that project. And then you reflect upon that feedback and that whole feedback loop was tremendous uh, because nobody, A, nobody was negative, right? Nobody was critical because everybody was actually putting genuine effort into it. There was no need to be critical. And the feedback was delivered in a way that was thoughtful, made you rethink your assumptions, pushed you further to improve whatever it is you had shipped. And then when you got to reflect on that, you really got the the ability to say, okay, um, let me rethink what I did and let me try to improve upon it. And that whole feedback loop was tremendous. I really enjoyed that experience. And I'm trying to apply that you know, now to my business and to the people that I interact with, because it's how often do we get to meet people that are willing to give us thoughtful feedback and help us improve something and aren't being naysayers and saying, well, that's not very good. You should give up on that. Instead, it's here's how you can make it better. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. The feedback were very constructive. And not only that, I think there was a process of us trying to write each other very useful feedback. Um, but all of us felt like we could have improved it even more. Just because we had the desire doesn't mean that we had necessarily the tools or the construct to, to make it better. I remember the discussion of, about how to give feedback. And immediately after that, I think you were commenting on one of my homework assignments where you were really zooming in and focusing on one piece of feedback, on one thing I should take away and rethink and improve upon. And, and I could also tell that you you spend some time to actually go over all the other people's feedback as well. So you don't write duplicated or kind of similar feedback. I remember one of the things you said is, you know, why do more with less? Why not do more with more? And I was thinking it's really interesting because it's very counterintuitive because we are so ingrained in uh, that's one very, very, very specific example. And uh, that's that's interesting. It's kind of breaking the conventions quite a bit. We seem like just normal people, right? And make me think that if we come together, there are a lot of things we, we could have done, a lot of wisdoms, even though we're not so-called the tier one, we're not the Seth Godin of the world. But we have a lot of value to offer one another. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, hopefully we all will be quote unquote tier one down the road. But we got the tools now to, in order to do that, right? Part of the process is showing up and being vulnerable and doing your work and making it better. And it's a long-term process. Like Seth Godin didn't get to Seth Godin until he put all of that, those years of work in. And now we have the tools to follow our own path towards that goal or towards doing something remarkable. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the idea of perfection being a trap. You were given these ideals of it has to be perfect, you have to be perfect. If you're not perfect, you know, you don't have anything useful to say. If you're not tier one, you know, your input isn't all that valuable. And our society creates these ideals of perfection and somebody reaches it for a minute or five minutes or whatever, and then we break them down or we find a flaw and then they're not useful anymore. And I think that approach is idiotic and not productive. So rather than having these ideals of perfection, 
what we were taught in Alt MBA is ship good enough and don't hide in that trap of it being perfect because it's it's either not going to get there or it's not going to get there on time. So do something good and then work on making it better. And that is so valuable because it forces you to say, I do want to do something. I do want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. Here it is. I'm putting it out there to the world and I'm using good feedback to make it better rather than never doing anything. much I think relates to business of any kind even as uh, even as for a blogger and people say that it's uh, easy enough to start a blog I even argue that I see many people hold themselves back including some of my clients to say I don't think I have anything sufficient or valuable to say then once you overcome that hurdle you see at one point the calculation was that 90% of the blogs have a single article on them so related to that I think there's that sort of interrelationships and connections between L10BA and what you're talking about precisely with your business, um, pure audio video. So walk me through how many years ago was this? I know at some point you were going to law school and there was a, a bit of a transition there. Tell me sort of the origin story of your company, please. Sure. So I guess I'd have to go back to when I was 16 years old and, you know, my parents were doing pretty well and they were building a home and the builder introduced us. This is like in the early nineties to, um, what really amazing audio sounds like. And they were just starting to come out with surround sound. And I went and experienced that. And I heard, uh, you know, this little showroom in LA, I grew, you know, basically most of my time I grew up in Los Angeles and I had heard a pair of ridiculously expensive speakers, and I was just blown away by how real it sounded and how engaging it was, and it was just pure emotional reaction to it. And it opened my mind to a whole other world that I didn't even know existed. So it kind of became a hobby of mine through all those years, something that I enjoyed. And then getting out of law school, you know, we had just moved to South Florida. Me and my brother said, well, it looks like there's an opportunity to do this here and there's a market for it. And we took the risk, you know, we leapt into it and it's been a long journey, but the vision has stayed pretty constant, which is to give people great experiences with movies, with music, with smart homes, convenience and building great experiences for people. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have a brother as well. I wonder, is he the older brother, younger brother? Three years younger. Oh, wow. So just the two of you in the family. Yeah, you so up, yeah, two, two kids. Yep, yeah, two wow. kids. You end up working together, which by the way, that's um, kudos to that because, you know, many people, especially families or, you know, there are a lot of conflicts. What You mentioned some risks involved at the beginning and I want to just kind of 
get it straight on the timeline. How old how old were you when you started Pure Audio Video? Um, so I was, what is it, 2000 and... <laughs> <laughs> Got to go and do the math. So like 30. Oh, cool. So you didn't start doing that immediately fresh out of school. I find 30 to be a 30, late 20s, even early 30s. There's that, you know, three, four years there to me is there's that magical transitions, even just personally. That's, I think that's when I started the podcast and when I start questioning a lot of the conventions, protocols. So there were some risks involved when you're 30, your brother would be 27 at the time. And uh, what were some of the risks? What was the story you're telling yourself uh, at the time? I mean, there's a, there were a lot of risks. Um, one is, you know, we didn't have a lot of connections down here. Um, we were going in with neither myself nor my brother had worked in this industry before. You know, they call it the uh, custom installation industry uh, or slash consumer electronics. It's it's a weird space. Um, so we didn't have experience. We didn't have a lot of contacts. We had a vision and we had goals and we wanted to do it right. So there was obviously you had to put a good amount of finances in to get it started. And the market was strong. But then, you know, after we really launched in 2007 with the showroom, uh, a year later, just as we were building momentum, you know, you have the, the Great Recession. And that was extremely difficult. The whole industry really came to a, a halt, right? The whole economy. So how do you get through that? What do you do? How do you survive? A lot of risks, um, but we decided that we believed in the vision and we we wanted to make it work and we persisted and we just kept going and found a way, um, part luck and part hard work. And it, it was an interesting, if I were to do it again, I don't know that I would do the same thing. I certainly would, would do it differently. What are some of the things you would do differently? I would work in the industry at least for a little bit and get to know the ins and out of it before taking that leap. You get a lot of experience and you see the industry from the inside. Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, the author of Eat, Pray, Love and other successful books, I've been listening to her TED Talks and some of her other speeches recently. And she says, you know that the industry is right for you if you're willing to eat the shit sandwich that comes along with it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan. Um, so funny, I her earlier book, uh, You Pray Love, didn't resonate uh, with me very well. I think partly because I read the Chinese version and maybe it was a little bit weak, but uh, maybe just the translation. But I really fell in love with her most recent book called Big Magic. I thought was really phenomenal. I can also see her as a writer, author, kind of mature and really experience a lot more, kind of settled into a new self in a way. So, you know, the business I'm in, which we've been talking about for uh, for a little bit so far, I agree. I am mega appreciative and feeling rather blessed to have been the insider for so many years inside the agency, you know, for digital marketing, as well as working for different types of clients in relations to that digital marketing expertise, because even then it's different. The different makeup of the clients, the different industry the client is in. Uh, that big variety, by the way, really helped versus I don't feel that I've, I was too niched and too kind of narrow of a focus when I was working in marketing. 
What are some of the memories? Again, these are maybe stories that to me, they're interesting, but they do kind of backdate quite a bit. So many companies were closing down. Many people lost their jobs. What are some of the things you still remember that you did that perhaps were counterintuitive? What, how did you persevere? What are some of the hard decisions you had to make? I mean, we kept the staff extremely small and we made the commitment to pay the employees before ourselves, right? And always kept that going. And we just basically took, I mean, we tried events. We, we spent money on event marketing, PR firms, but we ended up really just taking the jobs that came our way, you know, and, and that was whether or not we wanted to or whether or not it was a right fit. We took what we needed to take in order to keep going because our thinking was if we can survive this and we can keep going through it, eventually things are going to turn around and we're going to be able to do the work that we really want to do and are passionate about doing. But the, the biggest counterintuitive thing we did is we spent money on on marketing and events and trying to build relationships. Was that effective to hire someone else to do it? Obviously, it depends on the quality of the hire as well. Was it helpful? So it was. Um, I think a lot of the events didn't really like pan out into sales, but they panned out into establishing new relationships, which was really beneficial. And then we ended up, you know, there was a magazine at the time that was offering, if you do print ads with us, then we're going to introduce you to people at luncheons that you can meet up with. You know, for us, architects and builders and interior designers are very important sources of business. So at one of these luncheons, I met a builder stayed in touch with him for about a year. And then he ended up giving us that, you know, breakthrough job that got us into that luxury space, you know, uh, that we really wanted to be in. Mm. Isn't it interesting? I look back on some of the clients I'm working with closely currently right now. Those are the relationships I've had. I had to actually go back to LinkedIn and see you know, how did I meet these people? How long ago was this? It was dated back in 2011. So that was five years before I went freelancing. It's incredible how valuable and uh, relationships are and how long-term thinking you must uh, sort of establish and hone in when you're uh, running a business. You really can't be too short-sighted. Sometimes I find it difficult to kind of explain to people who are younger and older, in fact, to say, what does that mean? How do you, some of the things that I learned through L10BA is, is how do you know that you're making progress? How do you identify these are the valuable relationships that uh, you should invest your time and money in, perhaps? What does the dip look like? How long would it be? And when do you have to quit? You know, I remember that both of us enjoyed Seth Godin for obvious reasons, but also the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, I mentioned briefly, there's another one, James Altucher, I listen to quite often. And the question is, when do you quit? When do you know that you have to quit? It's, it's kind of the related co- uh, question as to how do you know you're making progress? I feel like those are related. And that particular question came up at least 10 times on each one of those uh, podcast. So at what point did you realize that you were making progress and this is something you and your brother really want to devote uh, much of your time and energy into versus when you're thinking, oh, is this ever going to go? Is this ever going to work out? What was that tipping point look like? So, for, so I think in, in a lot of small businesses, 
um, even when they grow very big or as long as they just succeed, you have that that moment where you're up against the wall. It's that 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 do or die moment where you say, look, either it's going to work or it's not going to work. And for us, it was that builder who gave us that opportunity. The client was a pretty famous um, NFL player, local down here to Miami. And for us, it was that moment. Like, I think we knew if we get this job and there were, you know, like eight other companies competing for it. And we knew if we get this, our foot's in the door and we can build on this and do what we want to do. And we ended up getting the job, you know, wonderful human being, wonderful family. We're still in touch today, and you know, friends. And to answer your question of how do you know who to invest the time into, the Alt-MBA has given me a new perspective on that. And it's you want to find the people that are willing to show up every day and put in the work and put in the time and be accountable. And those are the people that you want to associate yourself with and engage with and connect with and build relationships with. Mm -hmm. I also want to add to that, certainly credits to LTMBA has given all of us a new set of perspectives and sort of challenge our previous assumptions. But I feel like it's almost elevating us to a different level. But I think what you also talked about is very much unrelated to LTMB in a way that it's related to your upbringing, where I um, interviewed many guests and nobody by the age of, I think, even 20 or especially 30 years old are without sufferings. All of us have suffered at various levels due to many different events, you know, some physical, some emotional, some spiritual. And, you know, I think when you were a child, when you were that two, three-year-old, that you didn't quit too soon, right? You could have given up. You could have complained to the world. But it sounds to me like, even though I wasn't there, that you were able to make friends. You were able to make it work. And you do have a support network of family, your brother, the teachers and students. So somehow... I feel as if, because I've gone through, you know, different set of struggles growing up, I find myself to always be a maker and, and problem solver. And in the context, even outside of business, just there are so many struggles in our personal lives that every single day I was thinking, how do I navigate the system? The system is broken. And how do I get around that? How do I make it work? I remember thinking about that when I was six years old in a way that I wish I didn't have to. I remember walking to school and thinking like, I wish life was easier. I wish my grandparents didn't talk to me this way. I know I'm better than what they thought I was, you know, and I'm going to be a better person. So because of that, I, I feel like it's almost second nature to you, what you're able to kind of navigate around your business, that like you, you did not quit too soon. I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, the, I think that's what drew me to, philosophy and Buddhism, Zen Buddhism especially, is that idea of we, we all suffer. And, you know, I, I suffer emotionally just like everybody else, and life presents a whole set of challenges. And I think it's important for people to understand that my disability is physical. The benefit of that is I can never really hide, right? When somebody sees me, it's there out in the open. There's nothing I can do to cover that up. I didn't have a choice in the matter. But what it helped me realize was 
I can overcome this. I can still engage with people and contribute. And it's not the overriding factor in anything. It's just another factor. It's another lens that sometimes complicates things, sometimes makes things better. But nevertheless, it's not the primary lens. It's just another lens um, to see the world through. And it's another set of problems that you have to figure out. So yes, the upbringing was crucial. But I think from that is also just the drive to say, I want something more. I want to overcome this. I want to be better, even though I'm flawed and imperfect and, you know, have these difficulties. reminded me of the fact that you chose to listen to my conversation with BJ Miller and many people have heard his stories, but many still don't know anything about Dr. BJ Miller, who is a triple amputee and who wasn't born with physical disabilities. But at the age of 19, you know, he lost three limbs and was uh, such a groundbreaking experience in a very subtle way, though, just feeling the the level of impact, having him speaking, giving a speech about five feet away from me. What was that story like to you? How how did it resonate with you? I'm, I'm a recent, you know, big fan of, of, of BJ and, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll get to meet him. I don't know. But it's interesting because I've done a little bit of counseling for parents who have children with disability when I was in Chicago at the Rehab Institute. And I think the difference between being born with a disability and having that having that thrown on you at some point in your life is BJ had another frame of reference. I never had another frame of reference. This was what I was from the beginning. So I don't really feel like a sense of loss because I don't know any other way. You know, it's always been this way. So for me, it's been about adaptation and growth and learning. But from this perspective, like if I were to, you know, lose a limb now or have that experience, it would change. That would be a different experience than his experience. But nevertheless, I can I can relate to it because some of the challenges that he ended up facing, you know, I have faced. It's just I've always faced them. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. I'm I'm curious, and I know this part is very vulnerable for, you know, for you as well as for Dr. Miller. You know, when when we talk about you know the story behind it all, I think for him, when Tim Tim Ferriss interviewed him about the morning after, I just I couldn't even bear to listen to that. But of course, B.J. Miller turned it around altogether. I remember just after that question was asked, and I immediately paused the podcast to say, it's too late for me to hear what happens. I need to wake up with vitality and, you know, meditate before I hear his answers. But somehow I didn't hit pause soon enough. 
And he was already throwing jokes around what actually happened. And our perception of our reality is really interesting. What we see consumes us in a way that what we see as opportunities, as losses, is such a fascination of mine. And I think that's where I gain so much of my energy and strength uh, creating this podcast, which is a thousand hour endeavor. But I feel like my being is fueled upon the conversations and the wisdom I'm able to gain at this point, more than a hundred conversations. So I'm so glad you brought up all these interesting things I never learned about. You're a very humble person, but when you said you were counseling, sort of just advising at the Chicago Rehab Institute for parents, you know, how, I never heard of this story. How old were you at that time? What brought you to that environment and why? I mean, it was a very brief period of time. I was in grad school, um, you know, uh, thinking that I was going to be a professor and decided not to do that. But I had some spare time and I was getting my prosthetic service there by um, a prosthetist. And I think he mentioned it. And I said, okay, that sounds like something interesting, something that I would like to get involved with. And it, it was a great experience. I hope to do more of that one day. But it was beneficial because, you know, you got to see the the fears that the parents had, you know, mostly it was young kids. And what they really wanted to hear about was, you know, what was your story? How did you adapt? You know, how did you deal with um, bullying or, you know, test taking, et cetera? You know, what were your experiences like? And it was basically sharing those experiences with them and those stories with them help them feel like, okay, if you can do it, then, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that my kids will be able to do that as well and succeed and, and make it through. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, very emotional for me to hear that because I interview several guests who echo that exact feedback. It's about being there, sharing your stories and not to be judgmental, not to uh, offer or advise something, uh, you know, at a level that perhaps the parents and children aren't, aren't ready for. And I interviewed Chris Edwards about the transgender issue and topic. And he was telling me that only if his parents knew that he was going to be okay and just stories to help them realize that, well, there is a different path. There is another, there are other options. There could be a different path would change their world altogether. And, uh, you know, today, young transgender people are given way more options and psychological support to sort of go through this period. Thanks for, for sharing the story. And you, you brought up bullying. That's another area I almost kind of wanted to delve into um, right away. As you know, I, I coach, one of the reasons I, I like to teach young children at my Taekwondo school is because bullying is is a, such a common phenomenon at public, private schools all around the world, right? And what were some of the experiences for you and what type of help and, and resources uh, did you gain from that? Um, back then it wasn't, I don't think it was as pervasive as it is today, you know, but it was still, it still existed. I mean, me and my brother went to the same school for, I think up until seventh grade, I was in seventh grade. So, you know, I think just having him, having him there 
was beneficial. I, I never really experienced much of the bullying, um, if at all. And then when I went into junior high, my solution for it kind of was accidental. I was in biology class and I was sitting next to a football player and he was looking at my my homework, right? And so I was like, okay, you know, I, if you're, you're only cheating yourself by not doing it, so go ahead, take the answers, I don't care. And, you know, that turned into the next week, he did the same thing, right? And then, you know, he, he comes up to me and we started talking and I like sports too. And he said, look, if anybody ever picks on you, let me know and I'll take care of it. And then that turned into a thing where I didn't need to worry about that because I had friends who would take care of it if it ever happened. You know, thankfully it never really did, but that's kind of how that worked itself out. Wow. Good for you. That's very strategic. Whatever works, you know, there's no manual there's no set of rules that will help children protect themselves at all times. I think as an adult now, knowing what's happening in the world, cyberbullying included, is how do we give them the tools and teach them ways, new ways of thinking of how to filter and how to process that information, which I really wish I did when I was much younger. But, you know, now in, in retrospect, again, I think we've all gained a lot from our experiences, good and bad. So I think I want to give people an idea that sometimes we go in assuming we know what audio video really means or what home theater really means. My mom, right before the interview, didn't know that I was going to interview you or who you are, asked me about home theater because it's such a popular topic in Asia, in particular in China right now. That's where my family's from. And uh, she's on WeChat and like instant messages and everybody's talking about home theater. So give us a sense of uh, what does that mean exactly? And in 2017, and sort of what does that mean into the sort of the near future? Because I feel like you're sort of the pioneer. You may be ahead of what a maybe a normal family can afford or even know about. Yeah, so for us, I mean, we're we're lucky that we get to we get to play in that, you know, state of the art space where we're creating, you know, these dedicated cinema rooms for you know, athletes and movie stars and people that are really into it. So we get to play in a very interesting space, but there are a lot of really great solutions for home theater um, that are much more affordable that unfortunately most people don't know about. And I think for us as Pure Audio Video, what we're trying to accomplish is when we give a demonstration for a movie or a piece of music, we really want an emotional connection to what we're playing. We're really trying to build memorable experiences where you're making that movie closer to what the director wanted you to experience, something that's engaging and powerful and leaves a lasting impression. Uh, we've had people, when we give demonstrations, um, cry or stand up and applause or just feel you know, very moved by the experience. And that's, I think, ultimately, I'm trying to share that experience that I had when I was 16, where I left that showroom pale and emotional and not knowing that that existed. So it's really creating those powerful emotional experiences that most people either don't know exist or don't let themselves experience. 
So I don't know how many, with a, how deep uh, of a technical specification and discussion we can get into um, uh, at a high level, I guess. How do you create that experience? What are, how do you set it up? You know, what do you look at? The size of the room and that sort of thing, or what they're trying to create. The experience that I guess your customer is trying to your clients are trying to create for his or her family, or in some cases, potentially for even a bigger audience. Right. So we start with what we call engineering, and we work with some really talented engineers out in California. And so, you know, the first thing you want to look at is room dimensions. The construction of the room matters a lot for various reasons. And the way we kind of frame it is like when you're building a car, you start with the chassis of the car. If the chassis of the car cannot support the engine that you want to put it into, you can buy hundreds of thousand dollars worth of equipment and not get a good result. You're throwing your money away. So it starts with creating the proper foundation in the building process, in the room dimensions, in order to be able to get the right experience out of it. And then when you do that, obviously the equipment still, the engine still matters, but it's not as important. You can get a tremendous experience um, with a lot of different kinds of equipment uh, when you do when your foundation is correct. Mm. It sounds uh, rather complicated because the area I'm living in right now is pretty saturated in terms of how many more houses people can throw in. But I do, and every time when I do walk by a newly renovated or just newly built home, I can't help myself just taking a peek and just. You know, what does the basement look like as far as you could actually see it? So how early do you have to be involved in the process of building this? Um, does it have to be a brand new home? Could someone give you a call when they have, say, live in the home for the past? The home has been around for 100, 200 years, which is quite common in the Boston area. Yeah, so the obviously when, when the home is new and you can get involved with the architect, it's ideal. There are certainly solutions for every problem. So if it's an if it's an existing home, the biggest challenge there is are the wires in place and are they, you know, do you have the correct wires and if not can we get there? Like do you want us to, you know, make holes in your walls and you're going to have to patch those up to get the wires where they need to be? And as long as that answer to that is yes, then we can certainly, you know, offer them tremendous solutions. There are products on the market now that you can get really amazing performance um, in an existing room without doing all the sound treatments and doing all the the other the other elements of building the room out. It's not perfect, it's not ideal, but you can still get a great experience. And ultimately that's what matters is is the key is figuring out what do you want to experience, what are you looking for, and then showing them and educating people and saying this is what we can offer you know, and seeing if they're comfortable with that or not. Mm. What are some of the options that are currently in the market that people could install or consider um, more easily? So what are some of the options online, like Amazon? Yeah, I mean, so you can go and get a, the simplest solution I can think of is there's um, sound bars now that, you know, they come with a wireless subwoofer and those sound bars can create the illusion of surround sound in the right environment, as long as there's, you know, sidewalls on the left and the right in order to reflect the sound so that it appears as though you're immersed by, by multiple speakers. You know, that's the simplest solution. And when you put it in the right space, it can be very effective. And 
just in case people are listening to this and are thinking, okay, if I once I cross that line and into the space that you're in, where your your company is in, when should people contact you or sort of get in touch with you? You know, how do they categorize themselves as someone, you know, a business or an individual who should work with pure audio video? Um, so it's difficult to put like a solid. Uh, say, you know, if you're spending X, then you're our client. And if you're not, then you're not. It's it's just a case-by-case basis of saying, I want really good surround sound in my living room and I want to be able to control it from one app, right? And have a TV and have a surround sound system. We'll, we'll, we're happy to help with that. It's just about, I think the easiest way to explain that is if you are past the point of, I'm going to do it all myself, and you want to consult with somebody who does it for a living and is an expert in it, that's when you contact people like like us or other companies in the marketplace to say, I want to have a better experience. I want it to be more like, um, not necessarily in terms of size, but in terms of quality, like, like an IMAX or like a really good theater. And that's one of the things that growing up in LA, it's a little sad that there's so many great commercial theaters in Los Angeles um, throughout the rest of the country. You know, I've lived in Chicago, uh, visited New York, Florida. The level of commercial theaters is not as high everywhere else. So people don't get to experience um, something amazing as easily. And that's where it becomes an educational process. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a budget because, again, you know, individually, I've been working in digital marketing and I know I can look at a project rather quickly and I know how certain companies will charge for that. And there is a bottom line. And I think that's okay, you know, because that's how we need to sort of segment, we need to be segmented in the market and how kind of differentiate ourselves as people who offer these services too. My last question related to the business is it's fascinating because it's so outside of my domain. Do you guys conduct uh, installations outside of Florida or do you prefer to kind of hone in on the clients within the state of Florida? So we, if it's the right situation and the right client and the right job, and just to say something really quick. So we're like Seth Godin says, right? We're not for everybody. Um, and we're not trying to market to everybody. We are trying to be do something remarkable within our niche. Uh, so we've done work in Turks and Caicos. We've done work in Costa Rica. Most of our jobs are in South Florida because, you know, they're complicated installations. People are doing, uh, they're automating their home, right? And there's service involved with that. So it's better to be local, but certainly there are tools in place where we can service projects remotely. And if the opportunity is right and the client, you know, we really click with the client, uh, we're happy to travel. Like we're doing a job up in Tampa later this year, and that's four hours away from us. You know, you really have to evaluate the situation to make sure that expectations between both parties are lined up. Mm -hmm. My final question People living in Boston or California, you know, in some of the states that if we assume that you, you cannot service right now, what should people look at or use as evaluation criteria when they go out and try to hire the right people, right companies such as yours? What are some of the questions they should be asking or thinking about? Uh, that's a great question. I think it ultimately comes down to 
you know, when you're not in an industry, the technical elements are, are going to be foreign to you. So it's not about necessarily delving deep into that. It's more about, you know, word of mouth referrals. Um, if they've worked with somebody that, you know, uh, but ultimately it comes down to trust is, do you feel comfortable? Are they trying to educate you on the process? Are they being transparent about what they're providing when they give you a proposal? When we give a proposal, our proposals are line items. They may not know what that component is, but when you go through it with them, it's a process. They understand it. They can wrap their heads around it. They know right what they're getting. And our goal is to always exceed those expectations, but it's a process of trust, of communication, and of being transparent about what the client's goals are and what how you are trying to exceed those expectations and goals. So any prof- it's like any professional you hire. Do you trust them? Do you feel comfortable with them? Are they being transparent with you? Um, those are the questions you need to ask. And if they're not, if they're giving you well, a surround sound package, and they're not listing what's included in that surround sound package, that's a red flag. You know, and that company is worried about going, you know, that you're going to take that proposal and go shop it somewhere else for 10% less or whatever it is. The way we look at it is different. We say, we're going to be transparent with what we're giving you, and you can go shop it somewhere else for less. But at the end of the day, have we built up the trust with you to say we're giving you a fair price, you feel comfortable with us, and we're, gonna, we're going to meet or exceed your expectations? Um, going to the company that is the lowest price, you know, we all know that, that oftentimes that doesn't work out. So it's good to interview two or three different companies and um, see which one is being most transparent with you and who you feel most comfortable with. Cool. I think that's a great, not only a great answer for choosing this particular type of vendor or company to work with, but I think it's a really good measurement for a lot of the collaborations uh, that will happen, you know. So I really appreciate your time, Gustavo. You know, I'm so happy that I got the opportunity to meet you and go through the Alt-MBA together. And it's just, it's been tremendous. I just want to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad we could do this. And it was so much fun. Hey, it's Faye. I'm back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at phaseworld.com to find out other episodes from this category or topic, or you could explore other awesome people who are artists and designers, digital marketers, performing artists, authors and speakers, entrepreneurs, students, educators, and more. For this reason, We've taken your feedback and created a landing page to most easily navigate by categories and topics. Simply visit podcast.faceworld.com to learn more. Sincerely, I want to thank you for your support. Bye for now.